podcast this week. Halloween ends yet again. That's right, folks. Halloween ends for the umpteenth time. And if that has caused you trauma, then we have the perfect person to discuss that with. Jamie Lee Curtis, the star of Halloween Ends. Plus, he is the Invisible Man, but he's also the star of Emily Oliver Jackson Cohen. All that and more on the movie podcast that... Wait a second. No. Can you guys hear that? What? Can you hear that? Two more weeks to Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Two more weeks to Halloween, Empire Podcast. Two more weeks to Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Two more weeks to Halloween, Empire Podcast. Oh, yes, folks. That's right. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Two more weeks until Halloween. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks weeks until Halloween. I am so excited. Have you got your, have you ordered your skeletons already? Have you, are you prepared? What have you done? Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. I'm joined by my three colleagues. I'm so so excited about Halloween. I've forgotten how to post a podcast. I'm joined by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helena Harris is here, Geek Queen. Hello. I have already bought two Halloween outfits for my very small, cute niece. So I'm, what are I'm they? ready. But, but why um, two? Are there, um, are there two of her? Because I couldn't choose. Ah, I She's see. just going to have to do multiple changes through the day like an award show host. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. That seems reasonable. One is a witch costume, which admittedly witch, has witch. Peppa Pig on the front. Which witch is which? other one is a Wonder Woman costume, obviously. Wonder Woman. Which one? Gal Gadot Wonder Woman or Linda Carter Wonder Woman? I mean, kind of comic, semi-accurate Wonder Woman, oh, okay. I would say. Good. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, we are also joined by our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. James, are you prepared? Are you filled with the Halloween spirit? <laughs> Stop it. Absolutely not. In fact, I loathe Halloween. And I, I have... I, I, the only thing... The, the thing that annoys me most about Halloween is when people do not respect the fundamental rules of Halloween, which is that if you don't have a pumpkin or a cobweb or a spider or some other tat in your house, fuck off. All right. So you, you don't have treats for the kiddies on Halloween? 100% not. No. He just sits with a well, bi- giant bowl full of candy no, inside a little and just bit. eats it all. I used to do this. I used to, I used to go out and get like a big box of sweets <laughs> just on the off chance that one of the little shits didn't take a hint and actually knocked on the door anyway. Because the way I figure it, like, it's just a glorified mugging. They're coming out saying, give me something or I will fuck your shit up. Like, that's basically what they're saying. So I didn't want to get mugged. So I would have sweets there in case of emergency, in case some fucking feral teenager turned up and demanded candy on pain of death. And then I'd give them some and hope they went away. But then, of course, the bonus of that is if none of them do turn up when I've turned off all the lights and the TV and sat in darkness pretending not to be home, then I have a big bowl of sweets to eat the next day. It's so, a win-win. So it is a win-win. <laughs> so it James passes out November 1st. He's just in a sugar coma <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on his on his sofa. Average uh, one day, to be honest. Yeah, average. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And Halloween is on a Monday this year. Amon Warman is here, uh, best dressed film journalist in the... Uh, of, <laughs> Of this part of the room, <laughs> no, you're you're very well dressed, Amon. Uh, how well dressed are you going to be on Hallows All Hallows Eve? I'm going to be very well dressed, but not in any Halloween gear. I've never celebrated Halloween. Remember, nudity is not dressed, Amon. We've discussed this. I, you know, my family. Is this you being never, a scaredy cat again? Well, I, it's, it's, it's partially that, but also my family were just never into it. My mum, especially, growing up, just like it wasn't going to happen. So. Yeah, I just never really felt the need to uh, celebrate it. The although the candy that James speaks of does sound very appealing. By the way, can we just yeah. stop calling it fucking candy? This is not an American <laughs> podcast. Sweet. Sweeties, sweeties, sweeties. Come on. Um, yeah, big fan of the sweeties of the chocolates, all the rest of it. But 
yeah, I'm just not a fan of the spirit of the, the season. On one occasion, on one occasion did I take part in the Halloween spirit, and this is that I went, and I'll show you the picture now here. This is me as the crow. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Yep, yep. So I, I donned the face paint and a wig, obviously, uh, and all of that. And I dressed up as the crow and I went out in Boreham Wood and tried not to get killed. Right. On Halloween many years ago. Uh-huh. And that's the only time I've ever done it. Try not to get killed. I feel I mean, like you have a very skewed vision of what happens on Halloween. Well, it's Boreham Wood, you know, so it's, well, it's, it's actually quite, quite, quite dodgy. But I, uh, yeah, no, my, my old martial arts teacher used to live there and he insisted that we, he said, you got, we got two options. We went around to his house and he had two options. We could either go trick or treating and I was like hard past. He said, or we all just rock up down to the pub in central Boreham Wood dress like this and see what happens mm-hmm. and i was just like i don't want to do either of these things but i figure like given the company i'm in i should be okay so it was fine well great anecdote <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. thanks Hansel. fantastic yeah. anecdote it was uh, good wasn't it yeah did you leave me a cutting point <laughs> <laughs> uh are we watching any films on halloween this year do we have any halloween movie plans well obviously we already watched hocus pocus 2 for the first time so <laughs> you know we've got that in store that is a big revisit and we will of course be talking about halloween ends mm-hmm. uh, some of us will some of us will i have not seen any uh, full disclosure i have not seen any films this week i'm uh, shocked and appalled due to a combination of covid <laughs> and just fragrant un- fragrant Fra- i smell great when yes. i'm doing it unprofessionalism yeah. flagrant unprofessionalism. Yeah. i'm very disappointed in you. what's your excuse jimbo well we'll get on to that I, I, I'm a conscientious objector from this week's uh, film review section, as we will discover. Mm. To one film. <laughs> yeah. To yeah, one to film. One. Yeah. I made a moral stand. Against one film. Yeah. That you hadn't seen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've taken a very principled stance on something I have no experience of. So this is going to be a fun conversation. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, listen, we've got two more weeks of Halloween. Ding, 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 ding. No, no, So we'll get into no. Halloween movies and what we're watching in Halloween and all that sort of stuff over the next couple of weeks. But for the time being, let's get into the regular pod, shall we? And let's start with the question. Let's have a question. And the question this week comes from at fertility fun who slid into my dms to say angela lansbury has died that's not how i found out by the way <laughs> uh, truly a loss for stage and screen and fertility fun goes on to ask best film use of a teapot and or typewriter and i don't like the teapot part of that question so i've changed it to <laughs> typewriter wow so and i've widened it i've expanded it to typewriter and keyboard so the best use in a film of a typewriter and or a keyboard now now i will say yes fertility fun yes. says the best two typewriter uses are both in atonement the c-u-n-t typing completely shocked me and i love the typewriter sound on the soundtrack yeah i mean if we're talking typewriter signs on soundtracks it's nine to five you're like me you're like you know but instead of event horizon you work nine to five into every single one of your answers to these questions twice recently okay (laughs) twice but um because it is one of the great songs but it is one of the great songs it's one of the great songs um just in case anyone is wondering, there might be somebody out there who is young and doesn't know. The reason we're talking about typewriters in relation to Angela Lansbury is mm-hmm. because that was the sort of the opening sequence of Murder, She Wrote, which was her great TV show. Um, the weird thing is, of course, like that's just one stage of her career, which um, was astonishing. Like she did everything. She got an Oscar nomination for her very first film role in Gaslight, for God's sake. I don't believe you. No, it's true. <laughs> and uh, and then just went from strength to strength from there. She was in a you know, bed knobs and broomsticks. She was in she was at one point an exercise guru, 
Really? Which, yeah. Like I've, Bonnie Langford? Uh, a, a little bit more gentle and, and slow. Bonnie Langford slow-paced. also got a nomination for Gaslight. <laughs> That's true. You should look it up. You should totally um, look it up. So, uh, yeah, no, she, it was basically in her Murder, She Wrote years. she was like, she had an exercise sort of tape for, for ladies. I've listened but to a podcast But everyone kept dying on it. it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just very sweet, kind of gentle, like, oh, if you can't handle this, do it this way. If you can't do manage, you know, what was it up, just try a bit. Like drinking a cup of tea. I mean, it wasn't far off that, but it was just lovely and encouraging and gentle and, and very nice. As Aww. you would expect of Angela Lansbury, who nobody had a bad word to say about her. She famously supported loads of uh, AIDS victims during the AIDS epidemic uh, before it was fashionable to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I heard the story, the Charles Manson story. Did you guys see this mm-hmm. on Twitter? Yes, I, he- I heard this. Yeah, Charles Manson. I, I had heard yeah. it before, but I wasn't, I'm still not sure I believe it. But uh, basically, at one point in the 60s, uh, Angela Lansbury's daughter started getting into a bit of trouble like she would be stealing money for and food and stuff from the house and she was hanging around with this guy that Angela Landry didn't really trust so she just moved the whole family to Ireland for a few years and the guy was apparently Charles, Charles Manson wow wow <laughs> I mean that's some that's some hardcore incredibly foresightnessness parenting there that's, that's let's just, move to Ireland and get away from this she's serial killer like, she you know clearly the intuition that, that she brought to Jessica right. Fletcher you I, know came that, from real life the hardcore nature of that as well yeah. you don't just move <laughs> yeah. two streets away no. you don't just no, move no. to a different town no fuck it we're going to <laughs> Ireland because right. they don't have any problems over there <laughs> no everything's fine in so, Ireland so we're all good anyway so just like a little word for Angela Lansbury because she I saw her on stage a few years ago she was already I think 89 or 90 and she was still on stage in London every eight nights a week you know amazing killing it absolutely amazing woman but anyway typewriters 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 because of murder she wrote Jessica Fletcher so obviously I would say The Shining has to be in the running for this Mm -hmm. I was going to say The Shining but Amon, before this very podcast started, stated <laughs> with no evidence to back it up that he had the definitive answer to this question. And I, I, I'm just desperate to hear how truly wrong he is. So please, well, please. This continue. is interesting because for me, the definitive answer is the shining. Yeah, so, I would have said so. Okay, so what have you got? All work and no play makes Amon a dull boy. Indeed. All work and no play makes Amon a dull boy. <laughs> do you remember a film called Wanted? Yes, I yes. do. I'm aware of it. Do you remember a scene in which James McAvoy uh, quits his job yes. ethically and then takes his keyboard and thwacks it's a good moment around the head with it? It's no it's the, shining. It's the, no letters, the shining. The letters fly out. Yeah, getting fuck you, but yeah. the, the tooth is there's there's the you. It's you can't handle it's the good. tooth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a good moment. It's, I rewatched one quite recently. Yeah. It's a fun film. It is a fun film. Yeah. It is a fun film. The Loom of Truth. Indeed. The, the loom, loom of Truth. The Loom of Fate. The Loom of Fate. That's it. The Loom of Fate. want to get that wrong. So it's also yeah. the best Loom you Yeah, it is the best <laughs> Loom. Yeah. TV show. Yeah. And a yeah. movie. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good one. Um, I feel like basically any scene uh, in Barton Fink qualifies just by virtue of there's probably a typewriter there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good one. Enigma. It's kind of a typewriter, isn't it? It's kind of a typewriter. Look, that typewriter belonged to Mick Jagger, which makes it cool by default. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Helen, you love your old-timey movies, which they have typewriters. I do. His Girl Friday must have a decent typewriting scene. I was about to say, there is a great typewriting scene. There's basically just a great like reporting scene in His Girl Friday where she's trying to write Mm -hmm. up the story, essentially as it's happening around her, and all the other journalists are like gathered around watching her. Well, all the others. Cary Grant, who is a host onto himself is gathered there like kind of editing over her shoulder as she types it's just mm. very cool 
Very sexy as well. The uh, bit in Predator when Dutch writes up his mission report on a typewriter, that's a particularly good moment. That's a good moment. Predator is not the answer to everything, (laughs) given that there is literally, as I recall, zero typewriters. Well, that's only because the CIA has got him pushing too many pencils. (laughs) Exactly. So if you want pencils... What's the matter? CIA got you lifting too many typewriters? (laughs) (laughs) About a hundred at a time by the looks of it. I think he eats them as as far as I can tell. Yeah. Paul Dano uses a typewriter to create himself the perfect girlfriend in Ruby Sparks. That's yeah. useful. In, in, know, in, in, really in no way problematic. Film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I probably should have done some research on this or, or try to jog my memory. But <laughs> yes, uh, all the president's men, Woodward and Bernstein, clack, click clacking away on their, on their little little typewriters, doing their little doing their little yeah, journalisms. Otter hadn't been invented then. It hadn't been invented then. If, 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 <laughs> if Otter had been invented then, I wonder if they would have taken down Nixon a lot earlier. A lot quicker. Yeah. A lot quicker, yeah. you know. All of those tapes would have been transcribed yeah. <laughs> seamlessly. We know he broke into Watergate and it was Arthur it was D2. Arthur D2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so all the president's men, that's got some hot typewriter action, hasn't it? Just, just attractive men pounding out uh, on the, <laughs> pounding it so out on the typewriter. All right, all right, stop reading my fans. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's, so that's a belter. Uh, doesn't, I was trying to think about typewriters and I was trying to extrapolate from there about typewriters and what you, the stuff you can do with typewriters Pop in type. movies, you know, with, with keys that are slightly wonky and, you know, uh, and typewriter ribbons. And so when people have looked and, and you know, because typewriter mm-hmm. ribbons have records of what people have typed on them. So I'm pretty sure, am I right in thinking this, that in Jagged Edge, the 1984 thriller, Jagged Edge, Glenn Close and Jeff Bridges, Glenn Close figures out who the killer is because he has a very distinctive typewriter that has a slightly wonky key and then she goes to the home of the killer who I won't name but it's Jeff Bridges and <laughs> no to watch Jagged Edge thanks Chris <laughs> it's a good film we'll try, we'll try and act surprised when yeah. Jeff Bridges is the killer <laughs> I mean it's so fucking obvious it's Jeff Bridges. but anyway uh, she goes to the home of the killer and then you know she's oh that's a fun sexy time and then she's like oh no I'm looking at your typewriter and it's the it's the wonky typewriter and she's going ah killer. There's been a couple of films like that, hasn't there? There's a letter M that's wrong in one film where they have to like type in the M. They have to like physically handwrite in the M. I'm just, I can see the page really clearly. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Dial M for murder. I mean it could it should have been, but I don't think it was. Does it count the scene where Jack Ryan is trying to get access to? the deputy head of the CIA's computer at the same time that the guy's logging in and they're both kind of <gasps> yes. dueling keyboards. Hot keyboard mm. action. Very hot keyboard action. Although it's really more of the greatest fax scene or printer scene in oh, history. You know, it's, it's, it's the it's joy of fax. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, Just the fax, man. And it's not gratuitous, unlike most no. fax scenes. No, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> or controversial, like most fax scenes. Uh, with uh, Whistler's keyboard in sneakers. Oh, fax scenes, very good. Is it, thank you. <laughs> okay. Whistler's, Whistler's keyboard, keyboard. He has that Braille keyboard in sneakers, and it's yes. amazing. Yes, mm. sneakers is, is usually the answer. Sneakers is the answer to everything. Yeah. Sneakers is my passport. Please verify mm. me. <laughs> uh, there's a, a really good keyboard scene in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which would be absolutely one of my Halloween, um, Halloween choices. Where uh, one of the people, so basically they, they go into a the, the group of scientists are called in to investigate a very, very, very old Catholic sect who are protecting this giant file of green liquid in the basement of this church in Los Angeles. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to worry about. And the last guardian of this file has 
corked it essentially and now the files acted all weird and they found all this stuff and so Donald Pleasance who's the the, the priest at the church calls in this group of, of young scientists priest. young young bucks to come in and take a look at it turns out long story short it's Satan in a jar and and uh, and, and shit starts going awry and people start getting possessed not by the Egyptian moon god Khonshu but by <laughs> Satan or close to it or the son of Satan it's, 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 I think it's the son of Satan who's trying to free Satan from uh, his interdimensional prison anyway one of the creepiest scenes in it is one of the researchers is possessed and she is sitting at the keyboard just typing in a f- just staring at the space and typing impossibly fast all work and, and no, no play it's not all work and no play <laughs> can you imagine that would be amazing what a callback that would be uh, but she's typing like you will not be saved you will not be saved you know and someone peeks in and goes hey how's it going and she's really really weird and creepy mm. is that as weird and creepy as Jack Torrance in The Shining which is what James was alluding to but for people who don't know what it is Jimbo can you explain uh, all work and no play Makes Jack a dull boy is the sum total of his novel, written over and over and over and over and over again. Which Better is than some how I approach I many of my features. Yeah, <laughs> uh, would not read. <laughs> that would be really funny. We should do that sometime in the magazine. You know, exclusive new shining. Yeah, so the real story behind the shining, and then just like three pages. Of yeah. Oh yeah, we should do that. No yeah, we should, we, should, we should totally do that. That's actually something I probably would have done back in the day. Just waste the page. That it is. <laughs> Uh, oh uh, that did remind me of something else, and not oh, fast typing reminded mm-hmm. me of Superman. Really? Yeah. Because I was going to say Jonathan Price, and then I was going to think really? of slow typing when I think of Superman. Well, no, but like that's why he has the job at the Daily Planet because he's the remember? fastest typist I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. uh, yes, but Lois Lane is an extraordinarily slow typist, and she types like that. She types yeah. like Hunt and Peck. Yeah, <laughs> which makes I mean. I get the idea that, you know, that's not her main skill, that her real skill is ferreting out the truth. But equally, come on, <laughs> at some point, you're going to yeah. learn to use at least two fingers, Lois. Come on. I love Lois Lane in Superman. And again, somehow after last week's extended Superman detour, we're back on Superman again. <laughs> I, I love Superman. And you say Lois is great at ferreting out the truth. I love I love her in that movie. I love Marco Kidder. I think she's great. It would have been nice for them to show that at some point. Yeah, <laughs> like they keep saying how great she is. And then we don't really get well, you know to that see old, that. You, you know that old storytelling rule. Yeah. Tell, don't show. <laughs> <laughs> I know it well. I know it well. Uh, yeah, when I rewatched Superman recently, and by the way, thanks to the people who pointed out that last week, it was Superman 3 that we were thinking of, that you were thinking of, ah. with, with, um, uh, with Pamela Stevenson. Yeah, Pamela Stevenson. See, I, I had this like much blonder idea in my head. She's very thinking, blonde in that movie. She's very blonde. And mm-hmm. I, I just looked at pictures of Miss Tessmacher and I was like, it doesn't, I, I just remember a different image. Because anyway. Tessmacher, I'm sure, does something similar where she says something that she shouldn't know or she has knowledge that she shouldn't really have because Lex is trying to like keep her in the dark. Basically. Yeah, in the dark. And mm-hmm. so maybe I thought of Miss Tessmacher, but it is. It's Pamela Stevenson in, in Superman 3 who's much smarter than she's letting on. Uh, but yes, Lois Lane, Clark Kent, we don't actually see him type that fast, but I guess he's trying to. No, it's just that line, really. That's the reason I've got him in there. But Jonathan Price, Jonathan Price in Tomorrow Never Dies. Commander James Bond. (laughs) He's typing away. I don't understand. That's how any magazine works. (laughs) Any publication, that's journalism. It's a perfectly accurate representation. There's another instance of miraculous fake typing in the five-star masterpiece known as Six Underground. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that movie, Um, which which did make me laugh when I watched it in school. (laughs) Oh, no. Has anyone ever been beaten to death by a typewriter in a movie? I feel like it should have happened. It's not to death. Or typewriters, a keyboard, but yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, he's not beaten to death. He's just yeah. he just has his teeth knocked out. Yeah. No one has been killed by a typewriter. Uh, if you do know of anyone who's been beaten to death by a typewriter <laughs> in a movie, then do let us know. Apart from Misery, of course, which is also the film with the missing typewriter key, he said in a bit that clearly wasn't overdubbed the next day after he edited the podcast and thought of Misery. Totally, totally spontaneous in the studio bit, this bit. Okay. Slide into my DMs. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. And that is where you can find me if you want to have a question read out on the Emperor Podcast. Thank you so much to Fertility Fund for this week's question, which also allowed us to wax lyrical about the great Angela Lansbury as well, who passed away this week. Shall we barrel straight into the movie news? Sure. This Certainly. week. Let's do that, folks. Let's do that. What has been happening, apart from obviously uh, the sad passing of Angela Lansbury? Blade. Later. Blazer. <laughs> Blade is coming later, as are a great many things. A great many a great things. Many things. What, what specifically is coming later? Uh, see, now you're asking me to bring up the details of this thing. So they've had a Marvel reshuffle, haven't they? Because they yeah. pushed Blade back by basically a year, right? Yeah. That's pretty much it. Wow. Something like that. So, yeah. and the, so, everything, so the Marvel deck has been shuffled to accommodate Blade being pushed back so they can spend some time uh, putting it together and reworking it now that they've had some some personnel changes there. So. Yeah. I mean, finding um, a director would be the first thing. Admittedly, that is always useful for a film. Yeah. And, and um, potentially this means that, you know, if there were problems there that they've decided they needed to solve, then mm. it's more important to get him right than get him yeah. early. Absolutely. You know? so. Blade is not a movie you want to mess up. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm cool with them taking the time to get it right. Yeah. I am, it has to be said, not of the particular hive who is trying to recruit Michael Giacchino to direct Blade. Because Wait, I, th- th- there's a hive? Oh, that? there's a whole thing going on. Yes, we should totally get Michael Giacchino to do no. it. Because he was is like, it, no, is it the G not. hive? I don't know what hive it is, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is, no, just just make that stop right like, now. Like, Werewolf by Night was fine, but not to the degree directorially that I'm going to trust Michael Giacchino as much as I love his music. Like, if you want to tell me Michael Giacchino is going to do the score for Blade, have at it to direct Blade. I have noticed, Amon, that you always call him Michael Giacchino instead of Giacchino, and I find that quite interesting. Am I getting it wrong? I don't know. I'm pretty sure you are. I say Michael Giacchino. Oh, do you? Yeah. Yeah. So am I the outlier in saying Giacchino? No, I believe Giacchino is right. Yeah, and Helen's always right, so I must be. Well, I don't know about that, but um, I I believe that's the Italian way. I've been taking some Italian lessons on Duolingo. It's me. (laughs) In preparation, of course, for the Super Mario film. That's right, yeah. Yeah, So you can understand To replace Chris Pratt as the voice of Mario. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, and I'm pretty sure it would be Giacchino. Giacchino. Maybe I'll just say good. How do I say it? Giacchino? Yeah. I feel like you say Giacchino. You know, I mean, you get, you now, say, now, now, you, now you're saying it to me, it does sound like that's something I would say. Giacchino. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get Hans Zimmer right. That's fine. That's good. Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer. Sorry, Helen. Sorry. Hans My bestie, Zimmer. Hans. Hans Zimmer. <laughs> if you would like more from... What's his name? Hans Florian Zimmer. Florian? Yeah. Wow. wow. Hans Zimmer. Uh, we have an interview special with Hans Zimmer, which is up right now in our regular feed. Uh, it features Amon here talking to Hans Zimmer. Uh, you would have killed me if I'd given that to anyone else, wouldn't you? I really would have. literally would have. I really would have. No. Thank you for I fear for my that. life. Even, <laughs> even now. Even now I fear for my life. As well, you should. No. Um, thank you for coming to me for that. That was a, a lot of fun. Uh, Hans Zimmer, Gladiator was the score that alerted me to the power of film music. Um, mm. And it's still, t- to this day, my favorite score of all time. Is it? Yeah. 
It's, I mean, it's, it's a, a great score. It's, it's a great score. A I love it to bits. Score. Like literally, my my thing the, that the, the perfect score has a completely different component. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that I do when I listen to new film scores, I listen to it all the way through, and I typically. Uh, so I listen to it on this iTunes. is a revolutionary concept. Yeah, I, know. I, 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 I listen my... to the whole thing before judging it. <laughs> no. Type 50, guys. Type 50. No, I, I listen to it all the way through, and then I five star the tracks, which I really, really love. With Gladiator, it's like every track. There's not a single bad track in Gladiator. It's that good. It's very good. It's yeah. very good. I Do you think Barbarian Horde, the battle, Barbarian Horde especially, it was, that, it was the last 90 seconds of that is what really changed the game for me because that is the scene in which Maximus um, takes off his mask and says, I'm Maximus Desperate Familius and then the crowd is going wild, the music is going wild. It's, 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 it's a perfect, perfect scene and the music is a big part. Yeah, it's good, but I think it could have been approved by Michael Cicchino okay. uh, doing the score <laughs> because he does pun track titles. He does. And he could have done Maximus Overdrive or <laughs> Gladiator. <laughs> Gladiator, I never met her. That, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. He could have done that instead. I do of, like his puns. He has yeah. a strong pun game. The, yeah. pun, the pun game is strong. So that's your favourite all-time score? Yeah. Helen, what's yours? I think we've gone off the beaten path here, but okay. <laughs> we have a little bit. Uh, it, it's, I mean, honestly, it's probably John Williams, isn't it? It's probably yeah. a... One of those. It's one, one, of those <laughs> one of those. Good old Johnny Williams. The best of John Williams. Uh, I, 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 I had this already on the when we did the John Williams ranking. It yeah. was the hardest day of my life. I'm not mm. going back. Was it? I don't remember what I've said before. Was it? I can tell you that the um, the recent score I'm most feeling is the Rings of Power. Yes, it is so good. I just oh. don't know. I, I'm I, I'm astonished every time. How can he? Compose films and TV when he's a bear. When he's a bear, I don't understand. I know, I know. <laughs> and and like he's not even hiding it. Like it's right there. It's in right his there. Head. Also, yeah. why didn't he do the score for the bear? It just doesn't make any sense. It's, yeah, it's too close to home. Yeah, conflict or of at interest. least the Revenant. You know, yeah. come on, guys. Yeah, or Paddington. Um, yeah. Or Paddington. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, there was good answer, Helen. Well, yeah, yeah. the best of John Williams. Says Helen. <laughs> What's yours, Jambo? Uh, Jambo. Jambo. Uh, I'm very, very, very fond of uh, obviously Horner's Alien score, but it would actually have to be the original. So Star you actually Wars. like his rather can't score instead. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, steady, steady. Uh, I could say the same thing, but I enjoy the Predator score and indeed when it was used in Back to the Future. But uh, I uh, no, but it would be John Williams' original Star Wars score is yeah, my all-time favourite, without doubt. Except maybe by his E.T. score or his Indiana Jones score. <laughs> or his Schindler's or List his score. Or his Superman score. Or his Schindler's List score. The, the Schindler's List theme might be the most beautiful theme Or his Close Encounters score. And, and yeah, you couldn't shoot down TIE Fighters to that though, so... <laughs> No. I cannot and I will not choose again. I yeah. Chris. No, I don't like it. No, fuck you. I'm not going to choose. Uh, so, I don't know. My favorite score ah, the Reservoir Dog soundtrack. <laughs> no, my favorite score, my favorite score is probably Empire Strikes Back. Okay. It's good. It's not as good as Star Wars, but it's good. It's probably Empire. It does have the Imperial March. I will grant you that. It has the Imperial March. It has the asteroid field. It has Yoda's theme. It has uh, Han and Leia's theme. It has all. You know, it 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 takes the fairly simplistic score of the first movie and builds upon it uh, melodically. (laughs) I still, I still have an awful lot of time for the Phantom Menace score. Not just for Jordan. So do I. But again, the last bit. And remember, I did this for the three fat structure during the pandemic. Like the fact that that final piece of music, the celebration anthem is the Empress theme in a major key and that just blew my mind when I found that out. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you think of Anakin's theme when he was on the toilet? 
I have no information on that and refuse to engage. Maybe I do, maybe I've made that. Did you, up. Did, uh, this was a serious thing. You th- that's how he came up. He with was it. in he was in a restroom or something like that, and he heard he heard the pipes. His pipes, or <laughs> yeah, and uh, and the pipes spoke to him in Anakin's theme. Wow. Yeah. Do you think that the score for Home Alone was inspired by the the noise the Central Line trains make when the doors open? Yes. Okay. I don't know. I, do. I, I couldn't pick the, <laughs> the score for Home the, Alone the first or the couple of The first couple of notes of the Home Alone score. Basically, every time I get on the, the not sorry, not the Central Line, the Circle District. Every time they I do get make the distinct District, sounds. They make a distinct sound and it sounds like the t- they're about to go into the full theme from Home Alone. See, Home Alone, when I hear the theme from Home Alone, I know that Christmas has begun and it's time to throw my TV mm-hmm. out the window. Uh, and that's that's like a beautiful yeah. it's a beautiful time for me when I when yeah. I hear those 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 da, da, oh so recognizable bars from Home Alone. What is it? How does it go? Da, 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 that's da, not the theme da, bit, though. Da, da, da. Are you sure? <laughs> what are yeah, you that's, singing? That's music from Home Alone, but that's okay. not the bit I'm thinking of. Okay, what yeah, that's no, music. I, I, like, da, I da, 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 da. Okay. I don't even know what we were talking about. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Luckily, (laughs) as an award-winning podcast host, I'm on top of things. Uh, So Michael Cicchino is not uh, our choice to uh, direct a blade, laser blazer. No, yes. uh, Which uh, who who do you think should do it? We talked about this two weeks ago, but you know the fact that they've they've pushed it back uh, a year shows that they are waiting to get the right composer to. To uh, to Moonlight yeah. as a director, but they've also they've also pushed to Deadpool three with Hugh Jackman as Wolverine back only a couple of months, but that's now out mm-hmm. on the eighth of November twenty twenty four. The Fantastic Four is moving to twenty twenty five because they still ain't cast them. I guess. They haven't cast mm-hmm. them, uh, but can't they just shoot the movie and then just put them in afterwards using special effects? Wow, <laughs> wow. so cynical about the Marvel process from you, Chris, of mm-hmm. all people. <laughs> I'm just I, I'm just saying it. You know, this is a revolutionary new technique. Mm. We shoot the film, <laughs> uh, I, and then we cast yeah. them. What are you as, as much as as much as I'm excited to see all these films, honestly, them having more time to do all of this makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, you know, we've lamented recently in terms of the workload that visual effects artists have with the increased volume that the MCU. I've started training up so I can do this. I, can, I think there's a lucrative gap in the market here. The thing is, it's not lucrative, isn't it, Chris? That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I know what I get paid by, by this company. <laughs> Pretty much anything. So <laughs> it's lucrative. Giving them more time to get it right on a script level and a visual effects level, to me, yeah. I think that's going to pay dividends in the long run. You know what? I hope they're not doing that. I hope they push the film back and they just sit around and stare at each other for six months. <laughs> Should we get the script better? Nah. <laughs> Sometimes you need a moment of calm in order mm. to be able to work at full full pace. Did you say yeah. calm or Kang? Uh, sure. Because the Kang dynasty is staying put, as of right now, it says here in the Empire website, on the 2nd of May 2025. But Secret Wars has moved back by mm. six months. It is now back a year uh, it's gone a full year after the Kang Dynasty, which is the next Avengers movie, and Avengers Secret Wars is back a full year, and that might mean Dessa Daniel Cretton might be able to direct both. What? what? Mm. We shall Maybe see. in the same way the Russos obviously did Infinity War and Endgame back to back in that, in that way. Very exciting. But my understanding is you can shoot a movie now and you don't need to cast. Did you see? <laughs> did you see the? Did you see Hitchcock would have loved this <laughs> this year? He would have been like, actors can't actually be props. This is incredible. Did you see the uh, announcement this week that they have announced a remake of Barbarella, yes. which will star Sidney Sweeney? And they were like, the headline at Variety was, Sidney Sweeney set to star in Barbarella remake. 
which doesn't have a director or a producer or a writer. It's like, so so how set to star is she? <laughs> exactly. Is she in costume right now just waiting for them to get a director? And she's like, wherever it is, guys, I am ready to rock and roll. Well, there is a writer involved, I guess, the Kingsman's Carl Gajusek. Good, good stuff. Gajusek. He wasn't attached when I when I. Yeah, uh, he's working on the script, apparently. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't turned it in yet, I guess. Um, and then Michael Bay and, and company Platinum Dunes are producing, so presumably okay. they have set her in place. But um, mm. you know, if look if she's at the point now where her attachment like gets something the green light, then great, fantastic for her. Who is she? She's, for people who don't know, she is big in uh, Euphoria. He, she's in the White Lotus. She's been making a certain amount of noise, you know, like as a young rising starlet. So mm-hmm. this is uh, this is a big step up, I think, but a cool one. And what is <laughs> What is Barbarella? What is Barbarella? And what is her net worth? Um, Barbarella is the 1968 film that starred you Jane Fonda. That. You I, just fucking Googled I did. I, did <laughs> I didn't. I, did, I wasn't 100 percent sure of the year, but 60s okay. film starring yeah. Jane Fonda at mm-hmm. her absolute hottest. Although you know she's still pretty hot now, to be fair. Like 60 years later, um, as uh, she's a space adventurer who has to track down a guy called Duran Duran, yes, who inspired the group. And uh, she does so by like defeating, for example, the Orgasmatron uh, by basically out-orgasming the Orgasmatron and um, <laughs> surviving it. And uh, yeah, it's just a, like a, a crazy big space romp with lots of semi-naked people in very cool costumes that are mostly see-through. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's about it, right? That's about it. Yeah. That's about it. Uh, sold. It is a camp space romp. I am slightly pessimistic about the chances of this getting made, but hey, Sydney Sweeney hmm. is set to star. About, it's so. been talked about before and hasn't happened before, so mm-hmm. you know it could not happen again. <laughs> All okay. of this has not happened before, yeah. and it, it will, will not, not happen, happen again. again. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Battlestar Galactica. Um, back so, to Bear McCreary. Back to Bear McCreary. Everything comes back to Bear. <laughs> Everything comes back to Bear. Yes. C- a couple of other stories. Uh, the next Poirot film is happening. It will be yeah. a haunting in Venice. And uh, for those of you playing... Spoiler, there's no actual ghost. <gasps> How dare you spoil it for us? It's the chambermaid dressed up as a ghost going, ooh, and she would have got away with it had it hadn't been yeah. for that crazy well, Belgian detective. if it hadn't detective. been for that, those pesky yeah, <laughs> moustaches, and also if it hadn't been for Jamie Dornan, Tina Fey, Michelle Yeoh, Kyle Allen, Ali Khan, Emma Laird, Kelly Riley, um, Camille Cotta, and Ricardo Scamarchio. So that's quite a long list of suspects. Obviously, it's a Poirot film. You've got to have yeah. like a million actors in it. Round up the unusual suspects. Mm. Uh, I have to say that I am quite excited about this, despite Death on the Nile. Um, I didn't mind that film. I, I didn't like it as much as I liked Murder on the Orient. Uh, murder, murder, murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> And I didn't love that movie, to be honest. So why am I excited about this? I'm excited about this because I just love that a moustache that mad can still be unleashed upon uh, cinema screens. A moustache that has, and I cannot stress this enough, its own origin its own story. Origin story. <laughs> and its own postcode and weather system That's as true. well. That That's is a true. big old tash. No, I've got, there's a, I've got a soft spot for what uh, Kenneth Branagh is doing with Hercule Poirot. And I, I look forward to actually being able to understand a word he says <laughs> this time around. An interesting little factoid about this one, though, is that it's set post-World War II. And that is unusual for Agatha Christie adaptations, mm. which are all between the two world wars. 
Well, this is interesting, much. isn't it? Yeah. I didn't notice that bit in the So it's uh, a sort of like semi-retired Hercule Poirot. So an so this, older Hercule. Just this, when he thought he was out, they pull him back. Essentially, in. yes. Yeah. But I wonder if this means like this is going to be the end of his like trilogy of Poirots or something. Like if this is a sort of finale. And it's an unusual one. This is a, mm. this is a relatively obscure Agatha Christie Hercule Poirot story. And they are positioning it as a supernatural thing. So it's the easy So there might be, maybe they've rejected it. Maybe Hercule Poirot is coming up against the boogeyman. Uh, what's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, that was. Maybe that's going to be the end of the movie. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be. It's going to be interesting. I, uh, yeah, soft spot for these movies, and I, I, again, I love the fact you know he wins the Oscar and then, <laughs> then does this. It's almost as if by stealth, like they've just announced it. They've they're literally about to start filming in in time in time for a release next year. So yeah, I'm buying up for that. Hercule Poirot and goes to a séance on All Hallows Eve, and someone gets murdered. Murder. I just hope that this Poirot is free of any drama because the last two have not been. Uh, also, uh, little bits of news this week. Andrew Stanton has signed up for a new sci-fi film, um, which nice. I am ex- look. I'm excited. I'm already about. excited because you said a, sci-fi film. I'm a John Carter apologist. Apart from Me anything too. Else. Yeah, that film. and um, so this weird. is um, <laughs> a live-action movie again. In the blink of an eye, it's called, um, and it reportedly seeks to tackle the entire history of the world and the nature of life, love, hope, and connection via three intersecting storylines. Big, ambitious sci-fi is my (laughs) jam, baby. So I am all over this. I cannot wait. Um, And I think Andrew Stanton is great. So let's hope it gets a better break than John Carter did. And indeed was a better film. It's a good film. It just didn't get, you know. It came (sighs) out after, you know, everything that had come out before was taken inspiration from. I know. I know. I do know that. And also I feel I mourn for Taylor Kish's career because he Mm. should have been Mm. much bigger than he is because it's Tim fucking Riggins. Tim Riggins, maybe. He's great. He's great. And yet we have Battleship. It was that. And then he had X-Men Origins, Wolverine, right? It was Gambit. I think it was before John Carter. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was this and Battleship were the two ones that were Mm. close together. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't quite work out for him, which which is a shame. Which is a shame. Something that might work out better is Nicholas Holt joining uh, Robert Eggers' Nosferatu um, as like the sort of handsome hero type, I suspect. That seems like good casting. Yeah, (laughs) that's interesting. So he's going straight from Renfield into Nosferatu. Yeah, a little bit of a change, huh? Mm, (laughs) Interesting. Um, And obviously he'll be taking on Bill Skarsgård's uh, Nosferatu and um, trying to save the winsome Lily Rose Depp. (laughs) <laughs> it's described. I, okay. I mean, I, it isn't, but I'm just sort of okay. editorialising. Winsome is a word that doesn't get used enough. Thank you. I'm trying to bring it back. <laughs> well, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> Speaking of win something, win winning some or losing some, uh, the spirited uh, teaser trailer came up this week. That's Ryan Reynolds getting the kind of somewhat uh, Christmas Carol treatment. Mm-mm. So he seems to be uh, a modern executive who is aware of the Christmas Carol story in a Scroogey type way, but more Ryan Reynolds-y. I feel like both him and his co-star Will Ferrell are very much playing the roles we have seen from them before. But what the trailer and the, the teaser trailer does quite well is set up the fact that this is a musical, that there are a lot of musical numbers, that they're written by Pasek and Paul, who of course did um, that film I don't talk about, and some stuff on stage, um, as well as The Greatest Showman. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what film I you don't talk for about? the best. What uh, film do you not talk about? La La Land. Oh, the excellent La La Land. Well, in fairness, uh, they only they only wrote the lyrics. Dreams. They only wrote the lyrics in La La Land. 
the music was written by Justin Hurwitz. And those songs are incredible and a million miles better than anything in The Greatest Showman. I didn't say they were better than The Greatest Showman. I just said mm-hmm. that they I were... I don't know if I can join you on that. Anyway. I have, uh, that that <laughs> the success of The Greatest Showman will be a mystery that will dog me to my, my grave. I like The Greatest Showman. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> there was another trailer for Enola Holmes 2. Yes, there was. Uh, Millie Bobby mm. Brown returning as the titular Enola Holmes. Uh, this time she's hired to locate a missing sister. Um, so yeah, I really liked the first film and I'm glad that we've got a sequel. Um, also, I know that I'm the guy for this, but the score for the first film by Daniel oh Pemberton is there great. It is. is really, Pemberton really great. is freaking great. He's Maybe one of the he best could, working he today. Could, he could direct Blade. <laughs> In fact, he should. He yeah. should direct he Blade. Should. It's Let's official. It Daniel has, Pemberton to he, direct Blade. He has a penchant for red trousers. A penchant. Right? So if he got blood all over them, it wouldn't show. I feel like this is a perfect solution. Okay. Well, that's it. If that's all you need. He's got some red on him. <laughs> he has. That's how it goes. It's really good. Is that Home Alone? No, that's Another uh, Homes. All right. I think uh, we have exhausted the possibilities of movie news for this week. Shall we have a guest? Let's do it. Let's do Shall it. we have a guest? Who do you want? Do you want Jamie Lee Curtis or Oliver Jackson Cohen? Actually, I'm not even going to give you a choice. You're getting Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> all right. So, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know her. She's the star of Halloween and Halloween 2. And Halloween H2O, and Halloween Resurrection, and Halloween, and Halloween Kills, and now Halloween Ends, uh, which brings the story of her character Laurie Strode to a conclusion for um, what I'm guessing is the third time. (laughs) Uh, This is, of course, the conclusion of David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, which brings Michael Myers back into conflict with Laurie Strode, the original heroine of the original movie, and basically retcons everything else post John Carpenter's Halloween out of existence. And one year on from Halloween Kills, actually four years on in the movie, mm-hmm. we find Laurie Strode back, ready to do battle, maybe for the final time, that's what the title says, with Michael Myers. Uh, very interesting and exciting indeed. Now, Amon here spoke to Jamie Lee Curtis when she came over to London a couple of weeks ago. Was this when I had the COVID? Did I have the COVID? I think so. I think so. you had the COVID. Yeah. Ah, oh, man. Did she say trauma to you? She did not. I haven't actually. listened to it yet. Oh, come on, oh. man. <laughs> I know. I failed. But uh, the end of this interview is a little bit special. Um, shall I say what? I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not That's not said. That's not said. Yeah. Um, but Michael Myers turns up and <laughs> even he finally speaks. He's like, finally, I want to unburden myself. <laughs> even though she doesn't say trauma, I think that you'll be very happy with how this interview ends. You'll it's, get a kick out of this. It's, it's awesome. She's such a cool woman. She's got a really good energy about her. I enjoy time. Chat there's a great energy inside the gym. And there's a great energy inside this interview as well. So here we go. Amon talking to... Oh, no. Guys, can you hear that? No, no, I can't. No, 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 we are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of Halloween Ends, Jamie Lee Curtis. How are you? Hello, Empire. <laughs> it's good to see you. And uh, you. Congratulations on the film. Thanks. I have to say, it wrong-footed me in the best type of way, because given what happens at the end of the last film, I was not expecting the positivity at the outset of this film, and I really enjoyed that. So how important was it to you 
to showcase that positivity at the outset of this film? Well, I don't think if you if we really think about how the second film ends with Karen's brutal murder, where do you go? Like, what's <laughs> like? How high can you go on a kind of emotional, physical, sound effect score level? Like, you would have to start the third movie like in space in order to be able to really connect the dot. What, if you are a fan of music at all, what I love about music is that there are pauses in music. There are interludes. There are quiet bits. There are very melodic bits. What David Gordon Green so cleverly did is he said, we all need a little bit of a break. It was important to show a passage of time so that everybody can take a deep breath and give Laurie Strode the one thing that she's never had, which is help, support, mm -hmm. counseling, an ability to grieve in a safe space. All of the what we now, all over the world, understand is the beginning of mental health awareness, grief counseling, et cetera. So that we start the movie with a Lori who has processed the acute feelings of loss and grief, and she is attempting a fragile ecosystem of an attempt to live today without the constant fear. She is not healed. She is never going to heal. And she's never going to be recovered. That wound will always be open, but it will have a thin layer of tissue over it. And she will be able to walk without a bandage. And that's who we meet. And I loved that that's who we meet. You've been playing this role of Lois Strode uh, across four decades now. Have you always known what you wanted the ultimate end for the character oh, to be? Oh, such a good question. Wow. And, or has that evolved over time for you? Such a good question. Wow. I'm, I'm, um, I'm a sober person. I don't, I, I'm in recovery for 20, almost four years. And there, there is a phrase we have in recovery that's always stuck with me, which is be where your feet are that we can all live in our heads and those that that rabbit hole of our brains and our minds with certain stimuli can really do a number on us all there's not a human being that doesn't know what i'm talking about absolutely right and so i'm not someone who future trips i i i would never try to imagine some scenario of an end uh a i also don't write them when i start to write something then i feel like i have I'm in the driver's seat, but I'm not in the driver's seat. I'm in the co-pilot seat, or I'm in the passenger seat, or I'm in the back seat. And so I haven't. Um, I was so happy and moved by the way this movie concludes, uh, which will ultimately conclude my my participation in the Halloween movies. Um, and it's sad. It's brutal. It's real. Um, And haunting. 
And I, I think that's really the only true end of a story like this. Absolutely. What was your reaction when they called cut for the that last time? last time? Well, I knew it was coming. And it was a pretty simple shot of me in a car. So once we had done the, the tour of the driving, I knew we weren't going to do that like 20 times. Yeah. I knew we actually went out one more time because the, they wanted to change the camera angle. But even that first time coming back to base camp, after driving around with a camera attached to the car I was in, I knew. So there's a natural feeling. I was crying before I ever got the door open. Lori is writing a memoir uh, in this movie. Has Jamie Lee Curtis ever considered writing a memoir? Oh, I've considered it. I've been asked to do it many, many times. I've been offered vast sums of money to do it, um, which I'm very flattered that um, someone would do that. Um, I will not do that. I've done a lot of things for money. Uh, wasn't that a lyric for a song? But I won't do that. <laughs> okay. Like it's the one... You know, my memories of human beings, my relationship with them is like mine. And I'm pretty open and I'm very, I'm a weapon of mass promotion on the socials. And so I put out a lot of stories and personal stuff, and, but I don't, I'm never going to betray personal intimacies and um, family intimacies and conflicts for money. Yeah. I will not do that. That's fair. And by the way, I don't have to do that because I have saved my money. I've made some money. You know, I've made some good investments. Like I'm very mindful, but I do understand there are a lot of people who don't. And then you have to go, well, that is something I can Right about, and it's very important for them and cathartic for them and all the rest of it. So I, I also appreciate it. My friend Jennifer Gray just wrote a wonderful memoir. Fantastic. Mm. And, and it made me, reading that made me go, huh. <laughs> I need to reconsider. Should I reconsider that? <laughs> and then I realized, no. Okay. I've heard that you are a scaredy cat when it comes to <laughs> horror movies. You should have been with me at the fake Halloween house here uh, today. Mm. where they had a camera on me watching some people go through it. And I didn't know when they said, you're going to watch them. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I'm not paying attention. And then I got in there and they had a camera on me yeah. and I'm watching on a screen, <laughs> basically a horror movie. I don't know when the things jump. I literally said, wait, wait, wait. I, I was not nice and I was cranky. Mm. And I turned to people and was like, no, 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 no. I'm not. I put my hand up on the screen in front of it. Like, I'm not watching. What are, what, what are we doing? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. I'm not. What? Would somebody tell me? When does he jump out? No, no, no. I want. No. Come here. You. Come here. No. You. Come here. When does he jump out? Does he jump out? And is he good? I don't. Like, don't fuck with me, fellas. I'm not interested. I'm exactly the same. I was watching a bunch of this movie through my fingers. Well, but by the <laughs> way, I don't know if it was my job, if I had to watch these kind of things, if I would say I'm not 
Like, what am I going to send you my shrink bill? <laughs> and you're going to pay my shrink bill because you forced me to watch? That's traumatizing. I'm not joking. Someone in the other room will tell you. Yeah. Say yes. Heidi, <laughs> say yes. Just say the word yes. Say the word yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not joking. Yeah. No. So I was angry because I felt like they were putting me through the thing I don't want to be put through. Absolutely. And the, the, those types of rooms, those types of experiences, definitely not for me either. Um, I did want to switch gears uh, really quickly to a film called Knives Out, which I absolutely love. I know that you are the official spokesperson for the Thrombie family and you made the announcement that you guys and family counseling, I hope that's going well. Yeah, um, have you ha had any conversations with Ryan about potentially coming back for another one no, somewhere down the line? No, what, what Ryan explained to everybody very early on was, well, first of all, first of all, Knives Out is a miracle movie. Yeah. I had no idea that the movie we made in Massachusetts was going to be that movie. I just didn't know. It, I knew it was fun. I knew people were good. But I just didn't know what Ryan was going to do with it. And then I saw the movie and my, I was <laughs> like, oh, my God. And then you could have had a really good movie where we all went like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then it, it just came out, made a little money, and just, oh, oh there was that movie. And then it caught fire. Yeah. And that was the the miracle of it all. It was like, this just became that movie. The same thing happened with Everything Everywhere All at Once. Same exact thing. A movie you don't expect to be much. It's like, wow, this is fun to make. I had a good time. I loved the people I worked with. Boom. And then the Daniels put that movie together and you go, oh, my God. So that is my favorite movie of the year so far everything i've all at once it's it's brilliant <laughs> brilliant yeah and yeah. i didn't have a clue <laughs> i actually have a quote from ryan johnson because uh, we, we spoke to him recently for his oh, for, second for glass out. onion yeah uh, sure he says this if we can put jamie lee curtis in the mustache as another character i'll do it in a heartbeat yeah so it, is that what it's going to take to get jamie lee curtis in the knives out film let again? me say <laughs> he, he's being very kind i am I am. I think it's more a testament to my head cheerleader nature. I think what he's saying is it's fun to have me around. Um, it was fun to be around that movie. I'm I'm collaborative. I'm around a lot. I don't. I I I'm active as a. I'm always watching and waiting and being like ah. But that's just my nature. I think he's just being cute and sweet and nice. Once that movie was successful, we all understood that they were going to carry on the Benoit Blanc um, story and then um, bring in different crimes and, and it would be distracting to bring in people from, it's not like my husband's movies where he uses the same actors right. in all the different movies, but that's what Chris does. Ryan, each movie will be different and except for Benoit, which is the, the, the way you focus a movie over and over again on and Daniel is so great. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of mentioned fun to be around, I watched or rather rewatched the Everything Everywhere All at Once blooper reel, which is epic. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen it. Oh, it's amazing. You're doing the the Wucha uh, sound effect. You're doing. Oh, when I think... <laughs> they were trying to teach us. Well, because remember, yeah. 
that movie, like Ryan's movie, is in their head. Right. They're the only people, as much as they can articulate what it's about. And my favorite thing, if you read on Instagram, they posted, go back, because they don't post a lot. They posted their real thoughts and the intellectual underpinnings of that movie. Mm. And it's so deep and so articulate. It's (laughs) shocking. (laughs) That's like when we were making the movie, you don't know that about them. Mm -hmm. They know what they want. They go, okay, good. We're good here. Okay, now we need this. But you don't know what they're... I didn't know anything. And then I saw it. And then I was like, So much bigger than anything I could have imagined. Knives Out, so much bigger. And what a thrill for me to have been able to do those two movies and these three Halloween movies in my 60s. That's crazy. I've heard that you had a Michelle Yeoh rap at the Everything Everywhere All at Once set that you did. Do you still remember the lyrics? You know what? It, was, it wasn't really that. It wasn't, it wasn't that elaborate. Um, it was the first time I ever met her. Oh, wow. Like I walked into the little rehearsal space and I looked at her and I said, you say Michelle, we, no, I say Michelle, you say yo, Michelle, yo, Michelle, yo. Yeah. And she immediately picked it up, you know, <laughs> She's the badass that I know, Michelle Yeoh. You know, she can punch and kick so high, Michelle Yeoh, whatever. I don't remember. It was a stupid little like high school cheer, but it began with you say Michelle, I say yo. And and that's how it began and that's how it will end. And I fucking hope that she wins an Oscar. And that I get to be the first person that makes up the rap. You say, I say, Michelle, you say, yo, Michelle, yo, Michelle. She's the Oscar, you know, she's uh, an Oscar winner that I know. Michelle, yo, Michelle, yo. She is brilliant and so kind. Michelle, yo, Michelle, yo. She will fucking blow your mind. Michelle, yo, Michelle, yo. It just writes itself. It writes itself. So (laughs) it it writes itself, Oscar voters. Amazing. You heard it here first. Oscar for Michelle Yeoh. Oh, for sure. And Oscar for John Carpenter for score for Halloween. Yes. It's a campaign I'm starting. Fantastic. I'll get behind both. I'm going to start the hashtag right now. Right now. (laughs) Jamie Lee Curtis. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. God bless everyone. Take care. (laughs) Okay. So that was Jamie Lee Curtis rapping. I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> if I'm honest. It's freaking awesome. Yeah. Honestly, okay. I defy any Oscar voter to listen to that and not immediately vote Michelle Yeoh for Best Actress. It was that good. <laughs> it's that good. Jamie Lee Curtis rapping is that good. It'll make you vote for Michelle Yeoh. Oh, because that's what she was rapping about. Okay. Yeah, like, well, like, what? Uh, yes. Yes. Should we really listen to these things before? Nah. Nah. I'm, I'm far too busy. Far too busy. I barely listen to it in a minute. You know, you could get all sorts of libel through in these interviews. I, you know, honestly. Uh, anyway, that was Jamie Lee Curtis. And now let's talk about the films that are out in the multiplex. Or indeed your sofaplex this week. I'm going to step back largely from the microphone because for various reasons I haven't seen anything. Hands up, fully admit, you know, that's that's 
Uh, it's very, very bad. Like Superman at the end of Superman 2. I'm apologizing to the president. I let you down, Mr. President, but it won't happen again. That's what I'm saying. And I fly off <laughs> fly above the earth. Heroic cape fluttering in the breeze. Not capes. But Superman could have turned back time and then gone and watched the films and then done the podcast. Or Cher. Share Cher yeah. could have as well. Yeah. yeah. Cher could have done, yeah. <laughs> if she could find a way. Yeah, we should get Cher in here to review the movies. <laughs> oh my God, that would be the greatest day of my life. What would Cher think? She, all Walking caps. in Memphis Bell. All caps. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> what? Were well, you just she's desperately not, trying to think yeah, of she's, Okay. Yeah, she's not in Memphis Bell, is oh, she? Oh, so she could review it for us. Oh, you, you're oh I see. Of, she, he's trying to play on Cher yeah. titles like, yeah. you know, instead of just like Jesse James, it would be just like The Assassination. Just the the Cabral Report. Exactly that. Exactly that. Is Cher well known for that song, well, Walking, Walking in Memphis? Memphis. Yeah, she yeah. did a good cover yeah. of it. Yeah. Good cover of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Especially if you enjoy Postmodern Prometheus, the uh, episode of The X-Files. Okay, I hear okay. she's a big fan of David Cronenberg. She loves Dead Ringers for love. Dead Ringer, because she's yeah, on she's, that song. Yeah, yeah. She's, Isn't she on the song? Yeah, she is. She sang it with Meatloaf. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a talent. Oh, yes. The personality and entertainment than the food stuff. Than the food yes. Stuff. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Why is this happening? Hey, let's know. review some films. Let's review yeah. some films. Uh, shall we start with Halloween Ends, which I have not seen, but I'm on and Helen have. Sure. Yeah. Hell's Bells. Yes. So we um, pick up the story once again. We're back in Haddonfield, Illinois, and we actually don't start with Laurie Strode. We start with another story sort of a year after we last were in town. So then we jump forward another few years and Laurie, Jamie Lee Curtis, and her uh, granddaughter, uh, Alison, played by Andy Matichek, are uh, trying to basically rebuild their lives, be normal people with the shadow of Michael Myers finally gone, it seems, forever. There's a bit more flirting between Laurie and Officer Hawkins, Will Patton's character, uh, when they meet up in the supermarket. But the the real story here is um, about Corey Cunningham, a young man played by Rowan Campbell, who Alison meets actually via Laurie and sort of forms an attachment to. He has uh, tragedy in his past. No. Um, tragedy? And, yeah. And the feeling's gone and he can't go out. No. Um, <laughs> but the question is, can he sort of, you know, can he and Alison make a go of it? And then some bad things start to happen and this whole town is put back under threat, basically. I, I really didn't like the last one. I really, really didn't like the last one because I felt like it was trying to push this whole you know, hysteria is bad for us as a community. It's a terrible thing. Metaphor. Evil when, dies tonight. Yeah, when actually <laughs> the whole thing is it is entirely rational and reasonable to be scared of Michael Myers because he goes around like knifing people to death in horrible ways and it is absolutely sensible to be worried about that. Um, so the metaphor of the last film absolutely didn't work for me. And in this one, I think it's more about, uh, you know, it is about trauma. It is about dealing with uh, bad things having happened in your past and trying to move on and trying to rebuild your life. And how do you do that? Um, and the question is, how do you especially do that if bad things keep happening in the world and, keep, and there are still bad things of one kind or another somewhere out there? So there's some interesting ideas here that I didn't actually think entirely worked. I thought character-wise, people made decisions that made no sense to me. I thought that, uh, you know, it was inconsistent from one moment to the next about, you know, who Laurie is, who Alison is. And and it, that really frustrated me and kept taking me out of the film because every time I'd sort of get into a moment, somebody would 
would just change the the kind of the stakes and change the way things were were going in a way that didn't feel organic or earned or right to me at least. Um, Mm. There is gore here for the gore hounds. Like there is some horrible stuff. There are some horrible deaths that will, I think, keep people engaged. But what this says about kind of culpability and guilt and moving on, again, just doesn't feel coherent or powerful to me in the way that I wanted it to. So I, I find this incredibly frustrating. I'm sure people who just want to see some people get stabbed on Halloween are going to be maybe happy with this. But I think fra- fans of the franchise are probably after more. And especially for something that purports to be the end of the franchise and a real, you know, finale for Laurie Strode, and and I wanted this to be really, really worthy of her as a character. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I've got a very complicated relationship with the first two David Gordon Green Halloweens. Uh, I so I'm 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 nervous about this. I mean, one. there is ambition to do more. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There, there there really is ambition. I just don't feel like it's always achieved, basically. Yeah. So with with Laurie, I'm on. You know, does she get covered in blood at some point in this film or is she cowardly in this film? Basically, what I'm saying is, is it a case of red lorry, yellow lorry? (laughs) Oh, that was labored, wasn't it? Oh, boy. Wow. Red lorry, yellow lorry, red (laughs) lorry, yellow lorry, red lorry. Have you told them about your your favorite game to play in my car game? No, I I have a game like that. (laughs) It's a yellow car. Well, I do yellow car, but I also play red lorry, yellow lorry. So if you can see a red lorry and a yellow lorry on the road at the same time, you say red lorry, yellow lorry, and you win. What? She's very passionate about this game. <laughs> this, this is not a true rule of the game. This seems this is like a different game to Yellow Car. There's also Yellow Car. That's a whole other game. But this is you Red never stop playing Lord. Yellow Car. This is the yeah. thing. Now that I've, I introduced you to Yellow Car several years ago, and you've been playing it ever since, you made I them don't lose know. it. Did you introduce me to Yellow Car? Yes, when we went to Barcelona. <laughs> was that genuinely that? Are there a lot of Yellow Cars in Barcelona? I don't yes. remember. It was a very high-scoring weekend. Wow. <laughs> that makes it sound like we had a dirty weekend in Barcelona. We did. Helen and I, I went to uh, Barcelona together. Our team was there. It was quite gaudy. Hey. Oh. <laughs> anyway, how it ends? Yeah, I think enough I, of this rum blessing. <laughs> I think I liked it a teensy bit more than you, Helen. Although I Not do, hard. <laughs> although I do agree that it was thematically all over the place. Like I couldn't get a handle on Laurie. At times it feels like she has a death wish and at times it feels like she wants to live and it goes back and forth between those two things quite a bit. Not all the time making sense as to why. Um, but I did like, I think part of this why I like this one a little bit more than Halloween Kills. Halloween Kills, there are so many people making so many dumb decisions in that film that I think I could be heard at one point screaming, why are you going there alone, you dumb buffoon? I didn't find myself well, doing that. As, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find myself doing that as much watching this film. So on that level, I count Halloween ends as a win. Um, I also like the the positive start to this that it's, I, I say in the interview, but it called, sort of wrong footed me a little bit, especially given how the last film ended. That we do get to see at least for the first few minutes or so a Lori who is not, I guess, I guess not suffering from trauma, going a little bit too far, but she is living a much better life than what we've seen from her in previous times. And that was nice to see. It's also very bold and ballsy in that, <laughs> I mean, I say bold and ballsy, Helen might disagree in terms of you, it waits a long time to show you Michael in this film. That's interesting. Okay. But people will come to this for Laurie Strode versus Michael Myers for the 14th and final time. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, does the film will, will you know will they be sated? They will be sated, but they'll have to wait a while. And in terms of this movie compared to previous Halloween movies, I think there's a lack of tension here that fans might be a little upset about. But when it comes time for shit to go down, um, I I had good time with it. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one of my big problems with Halloween Kills was how it kept them apart for the entire movie, which is mm. realistic because it was on the same night and she had the sucking chest wound and she wasn't exactly going to get up and run around and uh, you know, especially at, at her advanced age, you know, she wasn't really going to kick then, ass and take names and then, yeah. Then then you then you might have some issues with this movie. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But they're in the same room at some point is what... Yes. Yeah, okay, but, without getting the spoilers, but yeah, which yeah. did not happen in Halloween Kills. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Sounds like you guys are somewhere in the two or three camp, and that's exactly where we ended up, because we gave Halloween Ends two stars. Next up, we have a film, <laughs> one of Netflix's Knockdown Ginger specials. Mm-hmm. It is Mila Kunis in Luckiest Girl Alive. Uh, Amon, you saw this movie. James, you pointedly did not. I refused to. Uh, okay. Let's, let's get into this. Why? So, uh, I was going to watch this one because it's obviously, I, let's, let, let's say I had some logistical issues getting screeners of the other films, <laughs> which we won't go into, because it's a bit inside baseball, but I could watch this, so I was going to watch this, uh, and I couldn't remember the name of it, so I just googled Netflix Mila Kunis, as you would do, and the name of the film came up. But the first story I saw was an article where saying people who had been watching this film were kicking off because it doesn't come with a trigger warning. Now, obviously, it's about school shooting, but basically, they, it mentions there's sexual violence in it, but people are saying this should have said it contains scenes of intense sexual violence at the beginning and should have had a massive trigger warning and people were kicking off and Netflix had dropped the ball by not including this trigger warning. Now, I have a real aversion to films that contain sexual violence and the idea of watching a film that contains intense sexual violence was a hard pass from me. So I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm just not watching it. So sorry, Netflix, on general principle, I'm not watching your film with intense sexual violence. So I suppose my question or we can dig into the reasons why, but my question will be, like, Amon, should it have had a trigger warning for extreme sexual violence? 1,000% yes. So I made the right decision. Yeah. Now, but shouldn't you have seen the film and then made that judgment well, call? It depends on what you want. Like, for me, like, I, I, it would have upset me, I'm sure, enormously, and I'm not prepared to put myself through that. So, like, like certain films, uh, like obviously I would never watch Irreversible for obvious similar reasons. I remember watching Leaving Las Vegas, and the sexual assault scene in that was so, like, I almost like had a panic attack in the cinema. Like, it really, really upset me. So it's just things like that. I just, I just, I feel like we don't need to see these things. I don't need them in films. It's just unnecessary, and I don't like it. So, sorry, that, that not for me is the answer there. Hard pass all round. Is it for you, Amon? That's the question. Mm, well, let's, let's get into oh, it. Oh, that's um, a bit loaded now. You yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's not for me. Is it for you? Yeah. Is it? It's not, I'm judging you. Like, it can be used non-gratuitously. It can true. be used to mm. make points and, and say serious things about the world. This is true. Um, but Luckiest Girl Alive, this is based on Jessica Knoll's New York Times bestselling novel. She's also the screenwriter. Uh, for this movie. Uh, it focuses on Annie Fanelli, played by Mila Kunis. Uh, and things are looking up for her at the start of this movie. She writes for The New Yorker. She's in line for a promotion as she's about to get married. But then a director of a crime documentary invites her to tell her side of the story because she's a survivor of uh, a school shooting. And that sort of sends her into a tailspin because she's forced to confront uh, stuff about her past, which then threatens her, then threatens her present. Um, the first and most important thing to say about this for me, Mila Kunis is great. 
in this movie. It's a really strong lead performance. And in this film, she plays a woman who has been saying what everybody wants to hear for a very long time, that she's sort of forgotten where her sort of real personhood is. And it's about her getting back in touch with that. And the journey is very, very compelling at times because of how great Mila Kunis is in the role. So I really like that. It's very introspective. She's very magnetic, um, especially as the film gets into the third act. She's, some of the things, some of the scenes that she's tasked with, she lands them in a very effective and poignant way. So I really like that. Um, the main issue with this is that not only do you have the school shooting, you've got the sexual assault. And it's trying to merge those two storylines together and it just doesn't work because it's too much for a two-hour film. Not only have you got those two very heavy storylines, but you've got a lot of scenes taking place in the past as well as the present. It's just, it's too much. It's, it's, it's not able to get into anything on an effective, really deep level. It's just too much of it. It's too surface level. I actually think this would have worked better as a miniseries where it could have given a better amount of time to both of these heavy storylines, trying to do them both at the same time just doesn't quite work. Um, and as you say, I think they could have been a lot more tasteful with how they showed the sexual assault and the school shooting. They are very graphic. That's unnecessary for me in a film like this. So, yeah. All right. Okay. What would you give it? Jimbo, you'd give it one star, obviously. Sight unseen. The, yeah. The, 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 uh, every week I'm going to get you to review a film you haven't seen. <laughs> I mean, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. One star then for The Luckiest Girl Alive from yeah. me. Uh, Amon, what would you give it? I'd give it two stars, but I didn't hate this. Uh, Mila Kunis, again, is very, very good. I just think the stuff that it's uh, dealing with, it needed a lot more time, a lot more real estate to get into it as effectively as the storylines warrant. Okay. All right. Next up, we have Emily, which is the story of Emily Blunt. Is that right? <laughs> that is incorrect. Hell's bells. Is she in Paris? That is incorrect. And she is not in Paris, um, although she does go to Brussels at one point. Emily um, in Brussels. Uh, Emily in Paris. No, but she does look a bit like Emily Blunt. It is Emma Mackey playing Emily Bronte. And this is a sort of biopic of the author of Wuthering Heights. Uh, so this ah, uh, tells the, the story. Bush song. <laughs> the Kate Bush song. That's exactly right, Chris. Well done. Uh, this tells the story of her and her equally gifted sisters. Uh, well, actually, look, I'm going to leave that to the English grads to argue about. But Charlotte Bronte, who's played by Alexandra Dowling, and Anne Bronte, played by Amelia Gething. And they're all living at home with their uh, vicar father, who's played by Adrian Dunbar. And um, it's a story uh, about partly about them kind of growing up, finding their voices, moving on from sort of telling each other little stories as kids to actually becoming the authors that they would become. But also uh, it's about a completely fictitious and invented, as far as we know, love story between uh, the, the parish curate uh, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen and Emily Bronte. So... It's a little bit annoying to me. So the, the director of this is Frances O'Connor, who you probably know as an actress. She was in mm -hmm. AI. Mm -hmm. She was in Mansfield Park. And I think for, for especially for a debutante writer-director, I think she's done a fantastic job here of getting, you know, the feeling of the moors, the sense of place, the sense of time, the sense of this kind of very, very bright, rambunctious family who are kind of struggling with the limitations placed on women at the time, but also like kind of pushing against those limits. I think she's got all of that brilliantly. And I think she tells a good love story, mm -hmm. but I just object to the idea that every well-known spinster in British literary history must be given a tragic love story in their past to explain how they were able to write about love stories. Because, you know, I don't think it's always 
necessary. And Have I feel you like, tried acting, dear boy? Well, a little <laughs> bit like that. Have you tried imagining what a, how a love story might go based on everything you see in the world around you? Yeah, this, uh, yeah, you that's know, a very literal take on on writers that they must experience. literally literal, yeah, literally, literally literal. literal. And yeah, I, uh, I think that's exactly it. And I think you know, so much of this is so good that I was kind of frustrated by this. Very well played. I, I have no problem with the actors, and actually not a huge problem with with the, the scripting of the love story. It's a sort of classic kind of butting heads to to finding a connection kind of kind of trope. But it, it's very been there, seen that. You know, it's it is a love story by the numbers, and it kind of feels like you know, and a development exec somewhere has gone. It's great to do a Bronte story. They have great name recognition, but we need a romance in there to make this work. And and it just mm-hmm. feels like it's doing everybody a disservice because so much of the rest of this film, I thought, was really beautifully done. But Emma Mackey is fabulous. She is fabulous. Mm-hmm. I hadn't watched her particularly before. I'm not. I haven't <sighs> watched so Sex good. Education. Sex Education is wonderful. But she is absolutely fantastic in this. Much better than she was in uh, Death on the Nile. Hey, you take that back about that film. I no, love that film. I like. I, that, I like hear, that film. She's fine. I will but never like, hear words sitting against that film apart from all the words sitting against that <laughs> film. Forty five minutes ago. But like it. Look, like, I, I I liked her in that, but I love her in this. I think she's she's mm. really really talented. I don't believe in the second Poirot movie because I'm a nihilist. Because it's <sighs> you know oh, is, I see. You know, right. nihilism is my least favourite film. <laughs> <laughs> it's also Fraser Crane's least. Yeah. No, that's Niles. That's Niles. Ni- Niles anyway, Niles. Uh, yeah. yeah, we gave this two stars, which two stars. I-, I think is a little harsh. I'd probably go three, but uh, you know, I I absolutely mm. understand um, where we're coming from with so, that. So not so much Wuthering Heights, more Wuthering Shites. <laughs> it's really harsh. It's good. It's good. Boom, with boom. Yeah. with yeah. Wuthering Heights. No, I don't know. Yeah. So you shouldn't bront bront bronte saw it bronte bronte brontosaurus. Just leave it. Just let it let it die, man. Let it die. <laughs> well, that that fell off a Heathcliff very quickly, didn't it? Oh, wow. There you go. There you go. Oh. No, you got it. <laughs> okay, so just a couple of films. I mean, Helen, you know, is like the anti-James. Yeah. For every James, yeah. it must be an anti-James. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Helen, night off too. Though. Uh, no, no, you don't get a night off, no. O'Hara. You have to see all the films, and you've seen two more films. You want to talk about yes, real quick? One's called Rosaline. The other one's called Nothing Compares. Yes, Rosaline is the uh, comic retelling of Romeo and Juliet oh. from the point of view of Romeo as ex. Do you remember she's at, mentioned in Act, Act One, Fair Rosaline, and yes. then he basically lays eyes on Juliet, and he's like, "Fuck her." I'm all about Juliet now. Yes. He's a, he's a bit of a dick. And and in fairness, this film really gets to grips with that. So Caitlin Deaver plays Rosaline and she's, uh, you know, ambitious by the standards of her era, which is a long time ago, um, and and has yeah, dreams which, away. you know, Romeo, who's played by Kyle Allen from The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. And um, from the cast of A Haunting in Venice, it all comes back all to Hercule Powell. There. there we go. Um, uh, yeah, he kind of doesn't get, but she's willing to overlook it because she's in love, she thinks. Anyway, then he meets Isabella Merced as Juliet and gets rid of old uh, Rosaline and she is determined to break them up and win him back um, with the help of Dario, played by Chantille, who is a kind of dead ringer for a young um, uh, Oscar Isaac. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, things don't work out no, quite that the way she intended. What? I know what? you can't see where this no. is going. But what I will tell you is this was a lot funnier and faster than I expected. Bradley Whitford plays her dad. Yes. Oh, he's on board already. Christopher McDonald plays Juliet's dad. Hey, come on now. Young Sherlock himself plays uh, Romeo's dad. Like it's just it's it's a packed cast. You've got mm-hmm. Minnie Driver in there as well. It's just really, really sharp, witty, and good fun. It's directed by Karen Main. I had a blast watching it, and I really didn't expect much from it. So. I wanted to see it a lot. 
I know. I was denied. You were denied. Mm. Well, who can blame them? Josh from the West Wing, Shooter McGavin and young Sherlock Holmes together at last. Yep. It's all Five I stars. Five yeah, stars. I, I just had an absolute blast with it. I think it's really, really good fun. Four and stars? I would I would personally go very high three, low four, somewhere in there. Very high three, low four then for Rosaline. Excellent stuff. And then we have the Sinead O'Connor documentary, Nothing Compares. Yeah. Uh, so this is directed by Catherine Ferguson. Uh, and I was really astonished by this because I just have this image in my head of Sinead O'Connor being this iconoclastic you know, really crazily outspoken, wild person. And this has a lot of footage from back in the day and obviously some voiceover from from herself and, you know, people she knew uh, nowadays. And 99% of the time she comes across as an incredibly reasonable person hmm. saying incredibly reasonable things. And all of these people are acting like she is basically just, you know, shot a puppy in the face. You know, so we can have a discussion about like tearing up the photo of the Pope. I get that that shocks people and I get that people were outraged. But, you know, she had an explanation. She had a thought process behind it. And basically nobody was willing to listen to it. And she already had the the reputation for being a sort of, you know, outspoken, crazy iconoclast before that for literally saying nothing outrageous at all. So I find this a really interesting rebalancing the scales because as someone who obviously knows some of the songs but not much more and wasn't really paying attention to her at the time, hmm. I'll be honest, because I was young. Um, I I was I just feel like I learned a lot from this. I know I'm, I, it's probably a bit one-sided and there's probably another side of the story at, at times, but I do think it's a really useful rebalancing of the public opinion of this woman who really was vilified by the press in a way that absolutely seems unfair looking back now. Yeah, I love how it draws a direct line to uh, the pop stars of today. Yeah. Because now they have their platforms, they've got social media, they have all these things that Sinead didn't have back in the day. Um, but as you say, this rebalances the scales very nicely. It's right on time. Mm. All right. Would you give it? Four stars, I'd give it. I'd, I'd probably go again high three, but um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be mad at a four star review. Right. Yeah. Nothing compares to four stars. And that's what we're giving or three uh, for nothing compares. And you would say that oh, that's it for this week's Empire podcast. But we have one more guest to come. Do you want the uh, one more guest, folks? Yeah. Why yeah. not? Sorry about giving your film two stars, Oliver Jackson Cohen, <laughs> but you are a fantastic... I go three. Helen would go three. Yeah. So there you go. If Oliver Jackson Cohen has listened to this podcast and there's every chance that he's not, <laughs> then, then that, that will have eased his pain. Uh, and, and, and the film wasn't his fault, right? The two stars Absolutely wasn't his not. fault? No, it's okay. really good performances all around. Really good British actor, Oliver Jackson Cohen. Uh, you saw him in things like... The Haunting at Hill House and recently you saw him and then didn't see him and then saw him again <laughs> as the Invisible Man in The Invisible Man and he was great fun as a buffoonish comic relief in Mr. Malcolm's List just a few weeks ago and now of course he is the lerve interest to Emily in Emily and uh and so we were very, very happy indeed to send along Ella Kemp to have a chat with Oliver Jackson Cohen last week. And uh, again, I haven't heard this yet, so there may be all kinds of libel that I just won't listen to during the interview and uh, and it'll slip through and get us all sued. So thanks wow. a bunch, Oliver Jackson Cohen. Anyway, here is here is Oliver Jackson Cohen and uh, oh, hang on. No, I can't hear anything. No. Nothing. No. Anyway, that's oh the God. end of this week's oh my God. podcast. Now it's time for Oliver, Oliver, Oliver. Now it's time for Oliver Jackson Cohen. Enjoy. You're a monster. Mm -hmm. Thank you for talking to us. No, thank the you Empire for podcast. Me. I love your podcast. Sorry, one more time, a little bit I love your podcast.
I Empire Magazine was the first subscription I ever had, and yeah. um, I, I think it, my mum still receives. I think I still, I think I've still got it. Have you? You're looking at me as if I know. I love, but I love that. Do you? You probably do know. Sure, <laughs> probably. You're like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we went to your How old are you when you first started subscribing 12. to Empire? Okay. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, it was pre-internet, wasn't it? So it, it was, was like that was exactly how you found out everything. Yeah. Anyway, we're honoured. I'm, well. I'm, I'm honoured to be here with you. <laughs> what a grateful circle moment. <laughs> well, we're not here. We can talk about Empire some more later, but we are here to talk about your projects and your films. Mm. Um, we're here to talk about Emily. Yes. I feel like I want to know how it feels for you having done this film, purely because I know that you had or still have quite an affinity for toxic men. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wayman's, he's not perfect. He's not perfect. But there's a, there's, there's a little bit more love involved there. Yes. You know, there's a bit more passion. There's like, there are, there's the odd moment of joy. Yeah, he's not going to kill her, is he? <laughs> I, I hope not. I really hope not. What was it like for you being able to explore, I don't want to say lightness, but just have a bit more love in your role? It it was really without sounding like an actor. Like it, it was, it really was joyous. Hmm. Like it, uh, Francis, I worked with Francis. O'Connor like 10, 12 years ago. And she said to me, she was like, oh, I think I'm thinking of writing a script about Emily Bronte. And then 12 years later, she called me up and said, do you remember I told you about this thing? I've written it and mm. so sent it to me. And it, it was, it was did just- Did you remember? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I mean, she, she yeah. I, 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 and it was, it was such a interesting journey. She did, Taken and I, I didn't. I went to a French school, so n had never read, never studied mm. any of the Brontes growing up or anything like that. So to me, it was like I, I, I think I'd seen Wuthering Heights. I'd never read the book, um, and so to me, it was just this sort of like incredible, like deep. And then once I'd read Wuthering Heights, and uh, it, it, it just, I just thought it was such a beautiful. Uh, Ode to Emily Bronte's creativity, mm. and and it was it was yeah it was an incredible incredible script. Um, so I was I was sort of very happy to kind of mm. come along and 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 play yeah. the religious floozy that he is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that is that's what's on his name tag. Yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Just just religious there. floozy. In one of the, there's a lot of very sensual scenes in the film, which is quite exciting for a period piece like this. I think. Um, one of the scenes that I thought was the most kind of arresting to watch, you know, one of the, I suppose, intimate scenes between Waitman and um, Emily is when they're just, they're just speaking French to each other. <laughs> they're just, there's just this whole, like, you know, this almost table tennis thing of them mm. just going back and forth the whole time. Obviously, you mentioned you went to a French school, but mm. um, what's it like for you acting in a different language? Oh, it was great. I mean, em, Emma's French as well. Mm. So, so we, we actually... Um... We, we sort of mainly, like, when we're not at work, or we mainly sort of talk in French. So mm. it was, it was um, I think the, the use of those French lessons in the, in the story, it, it's such a clever way of kind of deconstructing, but then also putting up all these walls mm. of this language that with, with all of the kind of the, the tension between them and specifically the, the, the sort of what they're trying to repress within uh, their, themselves, having this extra barrier, and then it creates this sort of incredible kind of passionate, uh, quite uh, tricky, um, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, 
and so yeah they they were really great fun mm. to shoot and and Frances as well she doesn't speak French so she just watched she would just watch the monitor and it was anything? we could have been literally we could have been saying anything um but she 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 would just watch the monitor and and, and would feel her way through mm. it and then say there's a moment where it feels like it needs to so it was it was kind of incredible and i think i i i i hope that that everyone feels the same way i think that there are there are really they're quite powerful some mm. of those scenes in in the movie i mean with the subtitles, let's just all hope that you know. Let's let's hope the yeah, subtitles make make their way. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you have any French directors in mind that you would be quite keen to work with one day? You could do Oof. a whole role in French. Do you know what? I was actually going to do uh, a French movie last year um, with a director that Emma had worked with mm. on on Eiffel. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was they they were doing Three Musketeers, and then. I because of COVID, I couldn't. Were I you going to be a musketeer? I wasn't going to be a musketeer. I was going to be the the Duke of. I think it was the Duke of Buckingham. So I was going to do my first sort of French, my first sort of French role, um, and it was amazing. It was like Vincent Cassel, and, <laughs> so and, or, and I was so excited. And then I couldn't do it. I was in San Francisco, and because of mm. COVID, I couldn't. Uh, yeah, there was a quarantine, so I couldn't do it. So hopefully, next year I'll do something with yeah. someone. Is, are there any names that you wanna that you wanna put out on the Empire podcast now to manifest to manifest a French voice Oof. coming into your orbit? I can't actually. Um, I was just having this conversation with someone just like five minutes ago, saying my, I feel like my brain isn't kicking into gear. We had to do some interviews this morning, and that I was asked about actors, like what actors name had, an actor. N- yeah, but it genuinely it was genuinely it got to the point of like it was going through my head, and I was like Morgan Freeman, and I was like that. <laughs> Well, yeah, he's great, but I don't know. It's like I feel like my brain is not firing yeah. at all. So I have to. I'm going to send you an email with a if you, list. If you think of the, if you think of a name, <laughs> think, just any name, any just name, shout I'll it just out. shout it out. Just interrupt. Any name doesn't matter. Will do. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask you another question like that. I'm really sorry. Um, okay. Obviously, we have to talk about Emma Mackey, who is unbelievable. Yeah, she's phenomenal. generally, but also in this film as well. I've seen you describe Emily as like a cross between. The haunting and sex education. Um, I don't know how that makes me feel. No, I don't but think But because of that, um, I have to ask, obviously, sex education adds the odd new character with every season. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering if you were to be added to a future season, mm. what would your character be? Well, do you know what? I feel like I'm going to, I'm way too old to, to be, to be in that world. So I would have to come in and play like a dad or a retired, I don't know, would I? I feel like you said well, it's like know. toxic men. No, Probably leave love them another in the to- past. Leave them in the past. Let's move on. Um, oh. Yeah, I'd love to. Do you know what? I just love to work with Emma again. Mm. And, and and that does sound incredibly accurate, but you've seen the film and mm. she is, she's phenomenal. I did a, I did a, a film a year and a half ago called The Lost Daughter and I'm in it for like a minute but I, I, I got to it with Oh we know the tank tops the, 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 the tank oh, tops yeah, yeah exactly just tank tops and, and dodgy tattoos yeah. but um, Olivia Coleman was in it and she is she's just got this inc- and I've never met anyone quite like it she has this in- incredible ability to just sort of drop into something and be so present and so um and so alive and then drops out of it and sort of thinks the whole thing's mm. a bit silly. And Emma has the exact same thing. It's like w- watching her work and working with her. So you, you, you just feel so safe, I guess. Yeah. So 
anything with Miss Mackey, yeah. uh, sign me up. <laughs> I mean, also, another thing about Emily and The Lost Daughter, these are incredible female-led projects, mm. both on screen and behind the camera. Mm. And your last three films, including Mr. Markham's List, were directed by women. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what kind of difference you notice on set working with a female director. Well, I've been really lucky because I feel like Maggie, it was her first movie. Then Frances, it was her first movie. And then Emma Holly Jones, it was her first movie. So I worked with three sort of first time directors back to back. Mm. And and it was so interesting. You know, it was just, it, the, the, all of them have been such such interesting experiences. Um, but I don't, I, I think that there, I think that there's, there's something quite special about being a part of, 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 of being able to be a part of someone's first, because I, I can't imagine, I remember talking to Maggie about it, like, I can't imagine the fear, like mm. how terrifying it must be to 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 write something and then actually have to make it. Like, I feel like we get it with like, you know, you say yes to a job and then you go, Fuck, I actually yeah. have to do it now. Um, sorry, that doesn't answer your question, does it? I've gone off on a tangent. No, no, it, I mean, it does because I think, the reason I ask also is because I think uh, when it comes to female directors, mm. there can be a tendency to either think that it only works for women in these films. I find it quite interesting when you have very good male characters and performances and actors yeah. kind of, uh, facilitating the story in a way I think mm. that's it it's just it's just nice isn't it it's just it's nice de it's dead nice it's not dead a nice. it's just good isn't it dead nice do you miss horror are you sad when do you're I not playing horror? a horrible role do I miss horror uh the interesting thing is that like I feel like I got asked this a lot and it was again it's because of timing that like I did this show The Haunting of Hill House because they I'd never read anything quite like it and it really was at the time, no one sort of cared about it. No one, I don't remember anyone being, and I remember I had agents at the time that have since, um, since been, been let go. Mm. But um, just sort of saying this, there's something so special about what they're trying to do. I don't know whether or not this will work, but I, 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 I feel like it really could. Um, and, and, it was, it was, again, it was, it was about those characters. So in, in Hill House, it was about Luke Crane and about, there was just something, it felt like a really important thing personally without sort of getting to, but it felt like a really important thing to do. And so it just so happened that he existed in this sort of horror genre. And, and I think that what Mike Flanagan does and has continued to do is um, he 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 finds this way of of, of sort of um, you know wrapping up these messages and within this horror veil and so you know that whole show was about childhood trauma mm. but he he makes it palatable to people so I don't know necessarily if it's like I've had this like draw to horror but the same with Invisible Man you know it's about gaslighting and it's about what 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 we've done for ages to to women and and. There was something so interesting about that message. And so it, I guess it became more about wanting to be a part of that mm. story that was being told. Yeah. And none of, none of it felt um, like going for a cheap trick or yeah. anything. It felt like there was, there was something yeah. kind of substance no, to no. it. You know what I mean? We just want you to be happy. Like, <laughs> I know, do you in. know what my mum said to me? I've just, I literally just got back last night from like a five month shoot. And um, before I went off, it's this thing for Amazon. And, before I went off, my mum called me and she was like, where are you going? And I went, oh, I'm off to like, 
New York and like Vegas and Arizona. And she was like, are you playing one of your sad boys again? <laughs> your sad boys? Sad boys. That's apparently what I do, according to my mum. Thanks, Betty. <laughs> Mums love to take care of sad boys. You haven't met my one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us on the Empire Podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here. Just jumping in real quick to say that now I've listened to the interview with Oliver Jackson Cohen, and it does indeed seem like there might be a chance that he has listened to this podcast, in which case we're doubly sorry for the two stars we gave to Emily, which of course Helen felt was harsh, and I am sorry for the Wuthering shite joke. Um, we think you're great, and now it's back to the regularly scheduled podcast. Bye! Okay, so that was Oliver Jackson Cohen, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by... It's my policeman next week, so as do we? Yes. Did that interview happen? It it has just happened. Fantastic. Emma Corrin and Michael Grandage, the star and director of My Policeman. My Policeman. That's exactly. My Policeman. Not quite as good as Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. But it's my. I like the my. It's not as good as my Bologna, is it? You know, it's true. Weird Al Yankovic. Weird Al Yankovic's on the plane. Saoirse Ronan. They're not here for you, Frank. Weird Al Yankovic's on the plane. Ah, good stuff. Anyway, someone else might be on the podcast next week. I honestly can't remember. So, Fantastic. So, good stuff. Do you come here for professionalism? No. He's refused to see films. <laughs> honestly. I'm a conscientious objector. It's You're a, a political... bangly bang conscientious objector. <laughs> I think I might know who else that somebody else might be. Maybe. But we're not announcing that until it's, it's okay, set in stone. So, uh, <laughs> so we shall see what happens. Uh, anyway, anyway, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more from fun. We'll be joined by... <laughs> Anyway, until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such a lethal cunning, Amon Warman. Peace. Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. <laughs> See, I'm getting into Halloween spirit. No, not really. There you go. And uh, I am refusing on principle to say goodbye to James Dyer. <laughs> Fair enough. No one knock on my door on Halloween under no. any circumstances. <laughs> what are you doing in there? <laughs> yeah. What's he building in there? If you see the house are rocking, don't cut anyway. I don't know. Just leave me alone. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I'm off around the James's. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's goodbye for me. I'm off around the James's for Halloween, or as I'm calling it now, prick or treat. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Ooh, trauma. <laughs> trauma. This is good podcasting right here.